When William McNeil spotted the distinctive wheel markings of the sulky on the dusty road, he knew he must be on the right track. William had been sent by his mother-in-law, Mary Murphy, to search for her son Michael and daughters Nora and Ellen early in the morning of the 27th of December, 1898. On the previous evening, the siblings had left their farmhouse on a sulky which is a small horse-drawn vehicle, to attend a party in the nearby village of Gatton. Gatton is in the state of Queensland, Australia, and lies between the towns of Ipswich and Toowoomba. In 1898, Gatton was still a fledgling rural community, with a population of only about 450. William noticed the tracks on the rough road easily, as the carriage had a misaligned wheel that left an odd pattern in the dust. He traced the route to the small carriage, from the main road, off across some trails, and into a secluded wooded paddock, about three kilometres from Gatton. There he found the three Murphy siblings. When he first came upon them, he assumed they were all fast asleep, and for some unknown reason, decided to camp out at that secluded spot overnight. As he got closer, to his horror, he saw ants crawling on Nora's cheek, and he realised that all three were dead. The scene he witnessed was like nothing seen before or after in the history of Australian crime. Just a quick message before the story continues. I'm John and I write, host and edit Persons Unknown podcast. I wanted to give a shout out to two people, Jules from my stag and Zoe W from Cardiff, who have been amazing at sharing the podcast on social media and telling their friends about it. Thank you so much, Jules and Zoe. I'd love to be able to thank others who are also doing this. You can email me at personsunknownpod at gmail.com and include a screenshot of your share on social media or simply tell me about the friend, family member or colleague you have recommended this podcast to. I'd love to give you a shout out on the pod. You can also email me to suggest unsolved cases you'd like me to cover. So that email address again is personsunknownpod at gmail.com. Thank you. Now back to this week's episode. The Murphys were in many ways a typical Queensland family of the period. They were tough, hard-working farmers who spent their lives making sure their dairy farm produced enough money to support their large family. They had resided in the farm at Tent Hill, just to the south of Gatton, for over 30 years. Parents Daniel and Mary Murphy ran a tight ship and brought their ten children up in a strict manner, not uncommon for the time. But it seems the family, at least to observers, were happy and the siblings close. They were respected members of the community and neighbours spoke highly of them, saying that no one bore them any ill will. 
However, as we will later discover, this point has been disputed. By 1898, Aldous' son Michael, 29, was no longer living at the family property, having moved to the town of Westbrook, where he worked on a government farm. Michael returned for Christmas that year to spend time with his parents and siblings and their families. On Boxing Day, which is the 26th of December, Michael accompanied his sisters Nora, aged 27, and Ellen, 18, to the Mount Sylvia races in nearby Caffrey. For clarification, Ellen's name was actually Teresa, but she was known as Ellen by her friends and family. After returning from the races, Michael, Nora and Ellen set off for a Boxing Day dance that was being held at the Division Board Hall in Gatton. Maria Boson's piece in the New York Daily News on the 24th of December 2017 says their mother Mary remembered the girls leaving for the dance in an excited mood with laughter on their faces. How the siblings were invited to the dance is somewhat of a grey area. One story says that Ellen had met a young man at the races that day who asked her to go to the dance, but he failed to turn up at the Murphy's farm, so Michael escorted his young sisters instead. Other stories say the plan was always for Michael to go to the dance with his sisters. One rumour at the time was that Nora and Ellen received an anonymous invite to the dance in the mail. Later, during the magisterial inquest into the deaths, Mary Murphy, the mother of the girls, stated that this rumour was not true. The siblings arrived at Gatton around ten past nine in the evening to find the hall in darkness and the dance cancelled. Disappointed, they set off back to their farm along the Tenthill Road. They never arrived home and so early the next morning, Mary sent her son-in-law, William McNeil, who was married to her eldest daughter, Polly, out to search for them. William found the tracks made by the sulky so easily as it was he who owned the cart and had lent it to his brother-in-law the previous day. He followed the wobbly marks down to the paddock which was owned by local farmer Frank Moran. The scene William found was both terrifying and perplexing. Ellen and Michael were lying back to back, 60 centimetres or so apart with Nora, about eight metres away, lying on a blood-stained rug. Both women had their hands bound behind their backs with their own handkerchiefs, and according to William, Michael had a purse in one of his hands. Some reports say the purse was lying on the ground nearby. There was a lot of blood, and all appeared to have injuries to their heads. The horse which had pulled the small cart was also lying dead. It had been shot in the head. William rushed from the scene to find assistance. On his way to the police, he stopped at a hotel and informed some people there of what he had seen. Unfortunately, this was to be a major hindrance to the investigation, as many people then fled straight to the scene of the crime. In fairness to William, he was probably in shock, stopping simply to unburden himself of the horrendous tableau he had witnessed in the paddock. William finally made it to the police station in Gatton shortly after 9am. The police officer on duty was Sergeant William Arrell, who promptly returned with William to the Grizzly location. Sergeant Arrell 
spent 30 minutes investigating the scene and concluded that the local police force did not have the necessary skill or experience to handle this case alone. He sent a message to the police headquarters in Brisbane, the state capital, for support. Unfortunately, Sergeant Harrell did not write down any of the observations he made upon seeing the bodies and the surrounding scene, or if he did, the notes were later lost. No attempt was made to fence off the crime scene from the general public, and over the next couple of days, dozens of people walked through the small pasture where the murders took place. There is a good chance some clues may have been lost forever in those vital first hours and days of the investigation. Some details about the crime scene were passed on by word of mouth by William McNeil and Sergeant Arrell, and recorded in writing later. Michael was lying on his stomach, but his face was turned towards the south. A large stick was lying close by him, with blood and hair on it. Ellen was in a similar position on her stomach, but her face had been turned towards the north. Nora was also lying on her stomach on top of the blood-soaked rug and had been strangled with a leather strap from the cart which was still around her neck. She also had a deep cut above her eye. The rug that Nora's body was placed on had been laid out neatly rather than thrown on the floor. All three had horrendous head injuries. It's also been said that semen was found on the clothes and legs of both women. The feet and legs of all three victims seemed to have been manipulated to point west. Michael and Alan's bodies, together with the edge of their cart, appeared to have been posed to form a triangle. Michael's brass-handled horsewhip was missing, along with Nora and Alan's brooches. These may have been taken as a grisly souvenir by the killer or killers. There were blood smears on one of the wattle trees close to the bodies that indicated someone had used its trunk to wipe their bloodied hands. There was one set of footprints which are said to have stood out straight away at the scene. These went from the small cart to the bodies of Michael and Ellen. They were made by boots that had a clear toe print but no heels, as if the person was leaning forward and carrying a heavy weight. As well as the contamination of the crime scene, the investigation was further hampered by a communications error which led to a delay in the Brisbane police hearing about the murders. By the time they did arrive at Gatton, two days after the murders, any hope of gaining early momentum in the investigation was lost. Before the Brisbane police arrived, the post-mortem on the bodies was undertaken locally by Dr Von Losberg as it turned out in a rather rushed and unprofessional manner. The doctor stated that the death of all three siblings occurred between 10pm on the 26th of December and 4am on the 27th of December. The violence inflicted on the siblings was far above what would normally be seen in murder victims. Nora had been hit around the head numerous times with such force that her brain was protruding from a crack in her skull. Nora had been strangled and there was evidence of sexual assault. It appears this may have been carried out with the brass handle of a whip. Ellen had been bludgeoned to death. Though her wounds were not as numerous as her sisters, they still displayed a sickening level of violence and overkill. 
Ellen had been sexually assaulted in the same way as Nora. Michael was also said to have died from blunt force trauma to the head, although as we will see later, this was not the case. He had marks on his wrists and the blows to his head had been administered when he was in a standing position, by which it was surmised that he had been tied to a tree during the sexual assault of his sisters. Michael had been struck on the right side of his face and Nora and Ellen on the left. Did that indicate that the killer used both hands or that there were two or more killers, one of whom was left-handed? The bodies were then hastily handed over to the family for burial. When the Brisbane police force arrived at Gatton, they were shocked at how quickly the post-mortems had been carried out and were frustrated to hear that the bodies of Michael, Nora and Alan had already been buried. They immediately asked for the bodies to be exhumed and for a second post-mortem to be carried out by another doctor. This post-mortem discovered a bullet lodged in Michael's brain and concluded that he had been bludgeoned after being shot, which had made the bullet wound less obvious. The gun used was said to be a revolver but a rifle was also mentioned in some reports of the time. A local gunsmith said that two bullets had gone missing from his shop that he couldn't account for. It is unknown if they were used in the attack. The new post-mortem led to Brisbane police voicing concerns over whether Nora and Ellen had in fact been sexually assaulted. Ultimately, the bodies were, by this point, too decomposed for any conclusion to be drawn either way on this matter. Gatton and its outlying communities were in shock at the murders, and people wanted a swift resolution to the search for the killer or killers. There was a sense of utter disbelief that such a thing could happen in this little farming community, and people wanted a sense of justice and normality to return to the place they called home. This sentiment led one local magistrate to promise Mary Murphy, grieving mother of the murdered siblings, that the culprit would be caught before nightfall, on the day the bodies were discovered. If only it was that simple. This quest for quick justice actually hindered the pursuit of the killer, and ultimately derailed the investigation. The detectives sent to lead the investigation into the Murphy siblings' murders was Inspector Frederick Acquire, who was head of the Investigation Bureau in Brisbane. He proved to be a controversial and much maligned figure in this case. From the beginning, the case had a strange atmosphere surrounding it, with locals dubbing the crime the Gatton Mystery within days of the bodies being found. Local, national and even international newspapers wrote columns about the Gatton Horror and seeds of this enduring puzzle were sown. It was as if the community was already resigned to the fact that this would be something that would linger in their midst for generations. The early part of the investigation was plagued by the speculations of astrologers and clairvoyants, and police had a file full of letters they received with all manner of theories regarding what had happened to Ellen, Nora and Michael. Even today, Paranormal enthusiasts still visit the spot where the murders took place. The small wooded pasture is now commonly referred to as Ghost Gully, underlining the supernatural way in which this unsolved multiple murder is viewed. 
Michael was a powerfully built man, standing at around 5 foot 10, which was tall for the time, and Alan and Nora were both strong and fit. The numerous injuries that Nora sustained was evidence that she likely fought back fiercely against her attacker or attackers. Could one person really have committed this multiple murder alone? It certainly looked to police that more than one person was involved in the crime, and reports in the press said there was evidence that at least three men were involved in the sexual assault of Nora and Ellen. Within a couple of days of the murder, it was being reported that two armed men on horseback were seen within a few kilometres of the crime scene on the night of the killings. They stopped at a local farmhouse to get food for their horses and then continued on their way. After the crime scene had been contaminated by so many people, any footprints left by the killer or killers were impossible to find, but two horse tracks were found, which trackers were sent to follow. In the subsequent search of the locality by police and locals, William McNeil, who had discovered the bodies, also found a bloodstained pillowcase around 8 kilometres away on the other side of Gatton, suggesting the culprits were trying to flee the area. Whilst they may have been attempting to leave, there was little doubt that the perpetrators knew the locality well and must have lived in the vicinity. There was no evidence of a struggle on the main road and the Murphy siblings had either been led, possibly at gunpoint, to the isolated location or willingly followed their eventual killers to the spot. The police were convinced these murders were at the hands of a local person or persons, and hinted in the press they already knew the killer's identity, but did not have enough evidence to pursue an arrest at that time. Inquiries amongst the inhabitants of Gatton brought forward two witnesses who heard gunshots at around 10pm on Boxing Day night. Louise Thuknoff from Deep Gully, which is about one and a half kilometres from where the bodies were found, heard two shots and then a couple of minutes later, screams, and picked out clearly the word father being called twice. She listened for another ten minutes without hearing anything else and then went to bed without telling anyone about it. Another witness, Catherine Hayes, who also lived close by, corroborated this evidence, saying she also had heard these things. Possible motives were beginning to circulate in newspaper articles and amongst the members of the community. There were rumours that a group of shearers were camping in the local vicinity on the night of the murders, and that three of the company had been involved in the recent shearers strike. The shearers strike of 1891 was a landmark industrial dispute in Australia was actually one of the catalysts for the formation of the Australian Labour Party. Wool Company management attempted to require workers to sign a new contract, which would lead to tougher working conditions and fewer benefits. This led to a conflict between unionised and non-unionised wool workers, which did on occasion spill into violence. Michael Murphy was a volunteer special constable in the Mounted Infantry, and had been part of the government's efforts to quash the strike. As a result, it is suggested, Michael had put a target on his own back 
for disgruntled locals working in the shearing industry. The murmuring spread that the killings were an act of revenge, and there were whispers that Michael's body had been mutilated in an extremely demeaning manner. The police later denied that this had happened. There were other whispers in the community about William McNeil. It seemed a little too convenient that he was the one who had discovered the bodies and also found the bloodstained pillowcase. It came to light that William had additionally found a poem written on a piece of paper at the scene of the murders and the police made him give samples of his handwriting as they suspected he was its author. McNeil was said to have had a difficult relationship with his in-laws and his father-in-law, Daniel Murphy, was said to have been very much opposed to his daughter Polly marrying him. Some wondered if this tense relationship and repressed anger had spilled over into violent rage. For his part, William acknowledged that Daniel Murphy had been against his marriage to Polly, but said he never noticed any animosity of feelings towards him by his father-in-law once they were husband and wife, and thought the matter in the past. Gossip was rife that there were improprieties in the relationship between Michael and his sisters. Accusations of incest, or indeed sexual abuse, were never vocalised outright, but swirled around the community. There is a relatively recent book that does paint Michael as a nefarious character, which we will examine later. The shouts of father, heard by the ear witnesses on the night of the murders, led to much speculation that Daniel Murphy, the victim's father, was involved, though his age and health made this unlikely. Others wondered if perhaps a priest had been involved. Of course, the call of father could have been a cry for help by terrified people. It was impossible to say. Local journalists were coming to the conclusion there could be a connection with another murder in the region two weeks before the Murphy siblings were killed. 15-year-old Alfred Stephen Hill left his home in Munda, near Brisbane, to visit relatives. He never made it to his destination, and when search parties went out to find him, they came across his pony, shot dead with a bullet hole in its head. This was near the town of Oxley, on the outskirts of Brisbane, and 75 kilometres from Gatton. Nearby were the remains of a fire, which contained pieces of charred flesh. At first, police thought that this could be human remains, and tests were ordered to be carried out. Days later, after a search of the nearby bush, the boy's body was found. He had also been shot in the head. Some reports also suggest that the boy had been sexually assaulted. Police at first dismissed notions that the Oxley and Gatton murders could be linked, but gradually came round to the position that both crimes may well have been committed by the same person or persons. On the 7th of January 1899, the police announced that they had arrested a man named Richard Burgess in the nearby town of Dalby in connection with the three murders at Gatton. He resisted arrest and fought desperately, and it took four officers to finally subdue him. Burgess was staying in Gatton at the time of the murders, and had recently come out of prison after serving time for attempted rape. He moved around a lot, and was described 
as a homeless drifter. Witnesses said they had seen him near the crime scene on the day of the murders. A man came forward to say that Burgess had come to his house in Toowoomba for food and had told them about the murders. The key detail was that this had been before the news of the killings had been announced. Richard Burgess said he had nothing to do with the attack and claimed he was being set up by the police, that they were fabricating a narrative and evidence that would point to him. Witnesses also came forward to say that Burgess was the man seen near Oxley where Alfred Hill was murdered. It appeared the police had the man and both crimes would be solved, the community could be put at ease and normality restored. Except that's not what happened. Burgess was able to provide an alibi for the night of the murders and his movements over the Christmas period were able to be accounted for. The police had acted quickly but in error. One of the witnesses who spoke out against Burgess admitted lying, claiming she did it as revenge against the police for a charge of vagrancy against her. Being a homeless ex-convict who happened to be drifting through the area at the time meant Burgess was a convenient target for the frustrations and fears of the police. Inspector Frederick Urquhart had been mistaken and the investigation was back at square one. A magisterial inquiry into the deaths of the Murphy siblings began in late January. These are similar to a coronial inquiry. In rural districts, there often wasn't a large enough population to warrant a coroner, so a local magistrate was given that power instead. The purpose is to investigate suspicious deaths or circumstances when the reason for death is unknown. An inquiry cannot find a person guilty but information collected there can be forwarded to the Director of Public Prosecutions to take the matter further. Most of the Murphy family were called to give evidence. Now that Burgess was in the clear, Inspector Equar turned his attention to the family, and in particular, William McNeil. The police and even the magistrate, Mr Shand, were critical of many of the answers the family members gave and both accused the Murphys of being deliberately unhelpful when questioned. Mrs McNeil, her first name wasn't mentioned in the transcript I read of the proceedings, was ill and had suffered a mental collapse following the murders. She was subpoenaed to attend the inquiry and forced to give evidence. In the end, her testimony provided the alibi that saw her husband taken off the suspect list. During a question about possible enemies the family might have, Mary Murphy mentioned a previous conflict that her eldest daughter had had with a local school teacher. Mary had written a letter to the school and the teacher had been removed to another district. The teacher then had a breakdown and was placed in an asylum. Mary went on to say that this woman's sister had sworn revenge against the Murphy family. Nevertheless, Mary said she didn't think the siblings were specifically targeted and said she thought they were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time and randomly selected as victims. Interestingly, the one member of the Murphy family praised for their cooperation was son Daniel, named after his father. Daniel Jr. had been a police constable in Brisbane at the time of the murders 
although it seems he had since left the force. When he was told of the killings, his immediate response to a colleague was that someone from home must have gone out of their mind. Though it wasn't put in these terms, Daniel Jr. was asked about the mental health of his family at the inquiry. He said he had never seen evidence that anyone in the family would have been capable of this. When the inquiry came to an end at the end of March 1899, there was no answers or clear evidence to dictate the way forward. The police and the magistrate felt the family were indifferent to finding the culprit. To be fair to the family, they had gone through a massive trauma and may have wanted to simply put it behind them and try to move on with their lives. There could well have been a feeling of resentment on their part towards the police, the press and to an extent the local community because of the rumours circulating about the family and their possible involvement in the murders. Could they be really blamed for wanting nothing to do with it all? Nothing they could say or do would bring their loved ones back. The investigation continued, but Queensland police officials in Brisbane were not happy with how things were progressing in Gatton. The inquiry had highlighted the fact that Inspector Acquire and his team were no nearer finding the guilty person or persons than they had been three months previously. By June, frustrations were at the point that the detectives working on the case were removed and transferred to other tasks. In a case full of rumours and gossip, this time it was the turn of the police to be on the receiving end. There was talk of police incompetence and perhaps even of a cover-up. By the autumn of 1899, a commission of inquiry into the police department administered by the Queensland State Authorities was underway and the police handling of the Gatton tragedy was under heavy scrutiny. Some incredible revelations came out at the commission concerning a potential suspect who was disregarded by Inspector O'Quar and other high-up detectives. A witness, Robert King, who was shop manager for Thomas Clark the Butcher, said he suspected a man who worked at the premises. Thomas Clark's butcher shop was situated on the road between Murphy's Farm and Gatton, not far from the location of the murders. The man in question was Thomas Day, and he was seen by Robert King with a jumper or pullover covered in blood splashes. Robert King said it was more blood than would be expected even if a person was carrying raw meat in a butcher's shop. He also added that no animal capable of producing that much blood had been slaughtered on that day. Robert King went on to say that he had informed police detectives of his suspicions within days of the murders, but was told by them to, quote, shut up, end quote, as the man was innocent. Detectives denied having knowledge of this suspect, but a police constable came forward to say that Thomas Day had been screened or questioned by detectives and released. Robert King wasn't the only witness to point their finger at Thomas Day. A person said they could put him at the location on the day and evening of the murders. Dr. Von Losberg was also criticised for his work in the original post-mortems, although he claimed he was ordered to release the bodies before he had finished the examination. He said he had to pause the post-mortem because of a finger injury, and the police refused to let him continue. 
Dr. von Losberg said he felt the police were interested in quick answers only, not full explanations from him regarding his findings. The commission was highly critical of police efforts and practices in the case. The hubris of Inspector Urquhart was highlighted, as well as his lack of experience in leading investigations. There certainly seems to have been a degree of tunnel vision on the part of Urquhart and his team when it came to potential suspects. This was more likely due to ineptitude, rather than any malicious attempts to hijack the investigation. Urquhart in turn said he never stood a chance and blamed the apathy of the family and community for not being able to solve the murders. Thomas Day was a suspect, not necessarily the guilty party, but to have him in their grasp and dismiss him in such an offhand manner was a monumental error. Within weeks of the murders, Day had moved out of the area. He was never seen by anyone in Gatton again. Thomas Day, who went by several aliases, including Theo Farmer and Thomas Ferner, was 20 at the time of the murders. He travelled around finding work where he could, and had not been in the area long. Day lived in a small hut, just 275 metres from where the bodies were found, and left the area two weeks after the murders. Before he left Gatton, he was questioned by police, although there are no records of this. The implication is either that they were destroyed by police to cover themselves, or detectives never bothered writing them in the first place, as they thought him innocent. In Paul Middleton's 2013 article, In Defence of Grandma's Uncles, the Gatton Murders and the Callahan Family, he says senior investigators dismissed their junior officers' claims that Day was a good suspect, based on his youth, charm and level of education. In 1900, Thomas Day was admitted to Sydney Hospital under the name of Thomas Ferner, with a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He died shortly afterwards. A suicide note was found, which said that he was present when the Murphy siblings were killed, and he could no longer sleep without the memories of that awful night flooding his thoughts. He mentioned several other people who were present on the night. This note has never been published in its entirety, so the names of the others are unknown. The note goes on to suggest that the police wanted to keep the case quiet, and he hoped his letter would lead them to being shown up. The note does not specifically say he was the killer, but admits he was present at the scene of the crime. A local historian from Ipswich in Queensland, Lyle Reed, is convinced that Thomas Day was the killer, and he claims a book, Oxley Gatton Murders, by retired police officer Neil Bradford, backs up his conclusions. Reed says that the motive for the murder was revenge. According to Reed, Day had stayed in Gatton on a previous occasion, and had met and fallen in love with a woman named Edith May Cook. Thomas Day had heard that one of the Murphy siblings, a name is not mentioned, had told their mother, Mary, that they were pregnant with Thomas Day's child. Day returned to Gatton in 1898 to enact revenge on the Murphy girls. His bitterness and anger fueled by the fact that Edith May Cook had died of septicemia whilst he was away. Reed says proof of this is the fact that a memorial notice for Edith May Cook was found near the murder scene, 
inferring that Day deliberately left it there as a sign pointing to the cause of the atrocity. I have read other reports that this memorial notice was found at the scene. I wonder whether the poem that William McNeil found at the scene, and to which his writing was compared, was perhaps written on the other side of this memorial notice. I say this because many modern reports mention the memorial notice being found, but none refer to the poem. Lyle Reed also thinks it's probable that Thomas Day was responsible for the murder of 15-year-old Alfred Hill in Oxley a couple of weeks before the Gatton murders, and E. Al Caris Wilson was charged for the murder of Alfred Hill, but police could not find enough evidence to prosecute him, and he was released from custody in June 1899. Alfred Hill's murder is still unsolved. In 2013, a local crime historian from Brisbane put forward another name as the killer of the Murphy siblings. Stephanie Bennett says she was put on the track of her suspect after a conversation with a descendant of the Murphy family at one of her book launches. She thinks the seeds of the murder began almost a decade before, during the Shearer's strike of the 1890s. I have already explained the Shearer's strike and how some people at the time thought Michael's role as a special constable during the strike could have been a motive for revenge. Bennett's research saw her spending days going through prison records, attempting to find the missing piece of the puzzle. Eventually, she came upon her suspect. His name is Joe Quinn, though apparently he went by more than 300 aliases. He had a host of criminal convictions and was in and out of prison throughout his life. She says she found evidence that Michael Murphy had an argument with Joe Quinn in a barber shop in Longreach, Queensland. Longreach is about 900 kilometres from Gatton. During this argument, Michael Murphy confronted Joe Quinn about his criminal behaviour, as Quinn was then in hiding, using one of his many aliases. As a result, Quinn lost his leadership position amongst fellow strikers and spent time in prison. Bennett says that Quinn travelled through Gatton often and used this opportunity to plan and carry out his revenge on Michael. She says that a handful of local criminals assisted him in his plan, people whom she does name. Michael Murphy is far from an heroic figure in Bennett's writings. She paints an unflattering picture of him, describing him as a womaniser and sexual predator of young women claiming he was responsible for the pregnancies of at least two of his neighbours. She also alleges these women died during botched abortions, but the reason for the deaths was covered up on their death certificates. It must be said that an article was written in response to some of these allegations by Paul Middleton in June 2013. He is a relative of one of the local criminals, Bennett says assisted Joe Quinn. He argues that many of the claims she makes are unfounded, and points to Thomas Day being a good suspect. Bennett says she has talked at length with current members of the extended Murphy family, and many say it is the most plausible explanation they have heard. The Gatton murders is certainly a case full of rumour and gossip, where myth and truth have long been intertwined.
and there is one such whisper still to address. According to unsolvedcasebook.com, in 1901, the Singleton Argos, a newspaper for New South Wales, Australia, claimed that the murderer of Michael, Nora and Alan Murphy had been captured and was locked away in an asylum. The article alleges this was not made public by the police, and the person's identity is a mystery. This theory at first seemed rather outlandish to me, and then I remembered reading one early report in the Littleton Times, a Christchurch, New Zealand-based publication, from the 18th of January, 1899. The article about the Gatta murders said the following. Before I start the quotation, please be aware this quote uses an outdated and offensive word used at the time to describe people suffering mental illness. Quote, the Gatton people are being kept in a simmer of excitement. The latest sensation has been caused by a lunatic with a knife roaming at large through the district, seeking to kill somebody. The police are pursuing him. End quote. This incident may well have been completely unrelated to the Gatton murders, but I do wonder if this is the origin of the story about the killer being locked away in an asylum. The murders of Michael, Nora and Ellen, and the mystery that surrounds them, have passed into Australian folklore. In fact, it was only six months after the murders that a show was put on at a local theatre in Queensland, entitled Chamber of Horrors, which included a tableau of the Gatton tragedy. Countless books have been written, TV documentaries have been made, and the story continues to draw people into the mystery. The violent death of the Murphy siblings was brought back into the public spotlight in August 2015 after a murder took place near the spot of the Gatton tragedy. The body of teenager Jade Kendall was found near the Mount Sylvia Road in a field at Upper Tent Hill just south of Gatton. Thankfully her case is not unsolved and Jade's murderer Brendan Bennett was found guilty and sentenced in 2017. It has been over 120 years since the murders, and it's unlikely we will ever get a definitive answer as to what happened. Reading articles, news reports and commentaries, it's clear that this horrific act has affected family members for generations, and I only hope that this changes as time goes by. <laughs>